Hello and welcome to Cinema of Meaning, a podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and fellow video essayist Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old. This week, we're going to be discussing the movie Her, directed by Spike Jones from 2013. Before we jump into the episode, I want to quickly mention Nebula. This podcast is a Nebula original. When you sign up for Nebula, you can get access to the episodes of this podcast ad-free and an entire week early, along with all of our bonus episodes. We've discussed movies like Babylon and 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's probably the most relevant to this discussion. That one also deals with AI and some things like that. But you also get access to all the other great content that's on Nebula, including ad-free versions of our own video essays and YouTube content and a class from Tom. There's a bunch of great stuff on there. So you can get more information and sign up by going to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the description. Let's jump into the episode. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about artificial intelligence. It's kind of the thing right now. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of new tools coming out. It feels like there's something new happening every week or so at the moment. And her is kind of an interesting movie in that space. There's a lot of movies that kind of deal with artificial intelligence. You know, you got 2001, Ex Machina, Blade Runner, a bunch of others. But her to me feels like it fits into like a really special slash weird. It's coming at it from a different yeah. perspective than I think any of these other movies are. Uh, and so I was kind of, I hadn't seen it in years. I don't remember when I last watched it, but I haven't, hadn't seen it in years. So I was, I was interested to revisit it and then discuss it with you and kind of, you know, dive into, into what's mm -hmm. going on. I was struck by kind of, I think how, how weird this movie is. I think I had forgotten how, yeah. like, it's very straightforward in a way narratively, but ultimately it's. It's delightfully weird. It has a very special atmosphere. Like, yes, I wrote down in my notes, like this is like a vintage future where, which it feels true to life, where every now and then we'll be reaching, you know, whenever progress happens, there's going to be some cultural reach back into the past where we, uh, you know, it's like we're trying to offset like some progress in one area by a regression in some other or to, in a way to embrace the new while also holding on to the past. And so uh, it's, it's just very strange, but felt also very lovely to see this far, it's not too distant of a future, maybe 20, 50 years ahead, I guess. It's not specified uh, if I remember correctly. But anyways, there's all this, when we meet Theodore, the main character played by Joaquin Phoenix, he's introduced to us as having a job where he writes letters for people. So, you know, even though people aren't actually writing their own letters to each other, the concept of writing letters to each other, that's made some kind of a comeback. You know, uh, everyone's wearing these kind of 70s pastel colors, uh, rocking a cool mustache. It feels both very new, but also very familiar, even vintage, as I said, like it feels old yeah. and of the past. And that's, I think, a really interesting setting also to bring an audience into, because I feel most AI movies tend to have either this 
dystopian aspect to them or they make AI the centerpiece of the whole thing, whereas here it feels more like a more holistically realized world that AI just happens to be a part of and instead of having it, you know, it's it's obviously the main focus plot-wise, but still right. the world feels much bigger than just AI and I think therefore it also feels... Uh, much more grounded and in many ways I think or we'll see maybe more prescient to what we are experiencing now with all these new AI models that have been coming out recently. Yeah, that was a lot of what I was thinking about watching it again was how human oriented the story is. There's a lot of a lot of stuff that explores these ideas, but it feels like the focus is more about this world is really cool or these ideas are interesting this this concept is interesting and those things are all here but ultimately are kind of in the background to what the movie's like committed focus is which is the character of Theodore and kind of what he's experiencing emotionally and what he's going through and all of this there's mm-hmm. some moments like later in the film that really illustrate this that I want to talk about but we can yeah. we can leave those for for when they happen. The other thing I want to mention here at the beginning, kind of while we're talking about sort of the setting and the, the vibe, is is what you mentioned already, which is kind of how undystopian, I guess, this is. Like mm-hmm. so much of the science fiction that we encounter now feels very dystopian or a lot of this, even just stories about the future in general. But this is one of the few that we've gotten where there's, I guess, maybe more somewhat of a critique that you could read into this depending on your Mm -hmm. perspective but like the way it's approaching it is very tender it's envisioning los angeles with with actual uh working like public train transit which is an incredibly optimistic view of the future i have to say (laughs) I, i love the way they constructed that where it doesn't show off like the future tech all too much because right i didn't even notice until I think the second viewing, I've seen it a couple of times, but every time you see him in the train and he's looking out over the skyline, there's also one shot where you see in like another skyscraper, the reflection of the train he's actually sitting in. And then it's revealed oh, yeah. that it's actually, it's not just any metro. It's like this huge, like a sort of monorail, like way up in the sky or way like at least like 10, 20 stories high. I don't know. But I always love like science fiction films that more subtly suggest their world instead of having like yeah. the big CGI establishing shots. And yeah, I, I think they actually shot it also a lot of it in Shanghai, actually, to make right. it more yeah. futuristic. I had this funny thought where I realized like a lot of times when American movies want to depict something futuristic, they have to go abroad to <laughs> film it on location. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about where we are in terms of progress yeah but (laughs) same i know like a lot of uh i don't remember which movie or tv show it was but there's i know there's a lot of or a few productions that have been set in like uh or have been filmed in uh, valencia spain which also has this now pretty iconic futuristic city part that's maybe it was oblivion or something i don't remember but um, yeah yeah, there's a lot of places outside of the U.S. that are now the settings for what a utopian version of the U.S. could yeah. look like, which I thought was kind of funny, but no offense to the American listeners. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they. I mean, we're we're all very uh, very aware of the yeah. predicament we're in. I do love the the way in which it it builds out that world though by essentially just. I mean, there's obviously some CGI in here, but mm. where it is, it's really good. You don't notice it. It's pretty seamless, and a lot of the world building is just what you're describing, which is kind of like taking. I don't know if they ever explicitly say it's Los Angeles, but they definitely shot some stuff in L.A. At least it looked like L.A. Mm. to me. And then they just like stapled other bits of other cities or or countries onto the world in a way that like, you know, just take the best bits of every city around the world and put them all into one place. And you have hmm. the utopia in which her takes place, I guess. Or at least it yeah. looks it looks pretty utopian from what we get to see. Yeah, I was going to say like from a city planning perspective at least, but as for like the social structure of... Of it all, you know, there's obviously that's where the right. movie starts really interrogating like the effects of its own modernity, I guess. And that's, uh, I'm sure we'll get into that later because, you know, just to be clear, this isn't just going to be an episode on the AI. And, right. you know, I think there's a lot of other themes in the way we, or just technology in general, how that affects our relationships, our ability to connect, uh, what it does to our social interactions and yeah there's a lot of more like human drama here it's not just a technological examination and uh, yeah that that's what i really enjoy about it as, as well yeah maybe some of that would be a good place to start you already mentioned his job and the letter writing mm -hmm. and that is something that i find to be a really fun way of kind of setting the stage for it's not just technology that's changed, but the culture has updated. There's different cultural norms. One of the things we'll get into later is by the time by the time people are getting into relationships with these OSs, there's some there's a little bit of like weird, you know, feeling out how culturally acceptable is this, but people seem to slip into it pretty easily. It's not there there doesn't seem to be massive barriers to to that being like an accepted part of at least certain, you know, parts of the culture. And so it feels like, you know, this is a culture, this futuristic culture that this is happening in is one where, you know, their expectations for what's normal are a little bit different maybe from what ours are already. The letter writing is kind of one of those that I love where it's such a beautiful commentary, I think, in a certain way of like the weirdness of what humans kind of latch onto or what we find to be like meaningful because it mm -hmm. it seems kind of absurd if you've never thought of it it's like why why would i want a letter written from somebody like else written by yeah, somebody yeah. else from somebody else one of my favorite reveals too is the moment where like he talks about the fact that he's been writing the letters for this one cu couple for you know the, their whole relationship or something mm -hmm. like that like eight eight years or something, yeah. Yeah, it's so kind of absurd on the face of it, but also I'm just like, it's also immediately believable as a thing that humans would, yeah. would get into. It, it feels a bit like an extension of something that we already see with, to a lesser ex extent, maybe with Valentine's Day or maybe birthday uh, birthdays in the, depending on... Yeah, where you're very red, but I, I can imagine a lot of those traditions once started with the more classical idea of actually, if you you're making a gift for someone, like you're 
putting in like the handiwork yourself and then show your appreciation that way. Or, you know, with Valentine, you write like a little poem or something. But now uh, more than ever, you see people just buy something pretty or they buy something pre-made. And um, I wonder if this letter writing business is some kind of extension of that where it's just like another thing that started once way back as this genuine human interaction or genuine human or just a way of showing your affection or something genuine about yourself and then slowly having that commodified into a business model and then basically just have people accept it and go along with it it also relates to the the whole idea of ai especially as we're experiencing it now and one of the questions i think that people will have like with the current AI that we're facing of if something is written by like someone other than the person who's sending it, how meaningful is that? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this case, it's not, it's another human writing it instead of an AI writing it. But um, pretty soon AI tools are going to be built into things like Gmail, which, you know, it it will probably become fairly commonplace. It looks like it may become fairly commonplace pretty soon for AI to at least be involved in like helping to write stuff that yeah, goes back and forth between people. And that'll probably be like professional communication at first, but you can kind of imagine that, you know, go down that rabbit hole and end up in these places where people get chat GPT to write a romantic message mm. to send to your loved one and then do that. And who knows if that's something that will become acclimated to or if we'll kind of reject that maybe you know maybe in this world maybe that's already existed for years and that's what makes it special is instead of having an ai write the letter you're paying you're paying a premium to Mm. get a human to do it and that's kind of what makes it (laughs) just like really romantic thing (laughs) i don't know (laughs) he he does get his letters or at least a couple of them publicized at the end so it maybe it does show that there is some kind of uniqueness to it maybe but yeah that was kind of my first thought when i was looking at it now through the lens of pretty much the ais that came out last week or so that you know why is theater still doing this job like it feels like that is precisely what like a chat gpt could do or you know i think they're they're clearly past the point where they just can be used for a speech to text or organizing some emails or doing some proofreading you know they're they seem to be more generative than that. So I think theoretically you could now, you could probably ask G- Jet, a GPT to compose like a letter like that and have it be somewhat decent, maybe not as romantic, but you know, it. I guess it depends on what input you, you give it, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe not as prescient uh, as I thought it was the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's that's the interesting thing that I'm working on a video kind of about some of these topics is, you know, the ways in which are kind of what we're bumping up against in terms of real AI really kind of challenge a lot of the assumptions that we have about AI, at least in the storytelling we've had in the past. And I'll be really curious to see if science fiction going forward if there's a change in how kind of AI is depicted because of that, that's a whole Hmm. tangent maybe we can get into later. But for now, maybe let's set the stage for the story a little bit more. So we have Theodore, he's writing letters 
he's kind of in the midst of this divorce. It's like he's stalled before it's complete, mm-hmm. really. He's friends with Amy, his neighbor. He's depicted as like, lo- we can tell he's lonely. He's just like wanting human connection and doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. really have it while he's dealing with this divorce. Yeah, it, it feels like he doesn't want to let go what he had, even though he, do- he knows it's gone. So he's, yeah, yeah he, he just feels altogether lost and... He's in relational purgatory. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what it feels like. He's, yeah. And uh, I think there's, you know, one very telling quote is that he, which he later confesses to Samantha, the OS, is that he says, sometimes I think I have felt everything I'm ever going to feel. And from here on out, I'm not going to feel anything new, just lesser versions of what I've already felt. And I felt like that revealed a lot about his attitude coming out of this marriage, which he probably perceived to be his, you know, the big one, his the, the one true love or the, the yeah. one significant relation that he had. And from here on out, anything else is going to be a lesser version of whatever it has that he had with uh, his first wife. And so, yeah, that that's, I think, where we kind of, the place where we meet him in. There's also what, maybe a little bit of a side note, but one funny moment that happens early on is where he's he's on some sort of social media kind of a tinder like platform where he swipes through other lonely people or lonely women in this case and then he has some sort of sexual interaction with one over the phone and that one of the ladies uh, or that ladies suddenly yells out or you know starts talking about a dead cat and like uh, right. You no, know, just being really weird, really awkward, and I think that's also because it happens quite early in the in the movie, and I think it that's also something that establishes just how, for one, how weird human beings can be, and how we all have like a, a little bit of an emotional baggage, or at least you know, a woman like that clearly comes off as someone who's had issues in the past with something or whatever and later it's revealed that Theodore has his own baggage and so that's it kind of sets the stage quite beautifully and quite funnily in about how we we are basically these weird creatures with our own little peculiarities and then when we meet it's just really awkward and I think that's also an important part in setting the stage for his relation with Sam or Samantha which happens later on where we have the sense that she or at least she as an os is more tuned into theodore's needs or at least more compatible in a way and that initially suggests that oh you know maybe human connection is weird maybe we should embrace this new thing and that that obviously leads to a whole bunch of other questions and that's basically the rest of the movie but i'm not sure where i wanted to mention that but i wanted to include it because i think it's in that scene specifically wasn't so it's such an important part in setting this defining contrast between what human to human interaction is like and then what happens when you swap one out for this os that's on the surface at least uh, perfect more perfectly compatible to the desires we have as individuals right yeah Yeah, it does a really good job of kind of setting that stage and like reminding us of those things, those ways in which real human interaction has a certain kind of inherent friction and conflict that you just kind of have to be willing to deal with in order to interact with other people. That's that's part of the deal 
is dealing with other people's flaws. And that's set up really well by what you mentioned and also hit the date he goes on with. We don't actually get a name, it's just blind date. But Olivia Wilde's character, you know, that kind of goes horribly sideways. So it, it also makes us, I think, more sympathetic to Theodore, to kind of the emotional state or the circumstances that Theodore are in when Samantha comes into his life mm -hmm. and helps us sort of like understand how and why he falls in love so quickly with this, you know, disembodied yeah. voice because she has what he hasn't been able to have before, which is something that feels easy and like, you know, is it feels largely free of, at mm -hmm. least at first, free of conflict and they feel compatible and, and all of these things. Yeah, I, I want to back that up a little bit to the moment sure, sure. Uh, because after that, first like established situation of the modern human to human dating landscape that's right. when theodore gets the os the new os and uh before it's set up it asks uh, a few questions and yeah. I, I don't know i didn't write them down but it, it's basically this freudian analysis almost where right. i think it was only two or three questions which are with one being uh what was your relation to your mother like and that like that and maybe one or two other questions that was apparently enough to yeah. categorize Theodore's whole character into a I don't know into a specific subset of personalities that Samantha then would be attuned to or programmed for but the, the movie doesn't really do anything else with that information or doesn't really reflect back on how that initial estimation plays into what happens later or how that defines what kind of character Samantha is or how that relates back to who Theodore is. He doesn't really give any particularly noteworthy answers to that question either. He just says, you know, right. with the relation to his mom, he said, you know, it was fine, but there was like this frustrating thing that she did and he was even cut off before he could really answer right. it. And then, you know, seconds later, Samantha pops up and she's just like, hi. Yeah, I do. It's a it's a beautiful example of the wor the way the the movie is kind of building its world. I love the implication that the sort of pause. It's not his answer, really. It's almost not what he's answering, but the way in which he answers because it cuts mm -hmm. him off. That's that's important to whatever it's kind of calculating yeah. for. Yeah, like it's just reading the tone of his voice and yeah, that's, <laughs> that's all it needs to know. <laughs> I'm good. I got it. Yeah, you know he starts talking to Samantha. They seem to get along. She's very, she immediately has kind of like a sense of personality and is kind of learning things as she goes. She helps practically with things in his life. But it's not until after this sort of failed date where things really kind of tip into the realm of romance between, hmm. between the two of them. Yeah, he doesn't get the OS with the intention to date it it's yeah. it starts off as more of this okay organize my emails now and then only later he kind of slowly comes to discover there's a real or at least in his perception a real consciousness behind it uh which you can even see there's that funny moment where samantha at one point says oh you have a new email from whatever and theodore more as like this reflexive reaction is still like okay, read email. And then Samantha answers in this robotic voice like, 
okay, I will read this. You know, or, <laughs> yeah. As if he, you know, he's mocking him for him treating her like we are treating like Siri now. Like if, like right. if for a moment he forgot that she's actually something else, which I just thought was a nice little detail. Yeah. The way her character unfolds is done really well. And there's thoughts coming in from the edges of the the script that I'm I'm working on right now about this. But one of the things that I was thinking about is how in film all all that we really need in order to perceive a character that is an AI as sentient is for mm -hmm. it to just essentially be human like. Because for us as the viewer, there's no there's not really any difference between a character that's pretending to be human and a, a character that is human because they're both just characters on a screen that are fictional. Like a movie can like this can do a really great job. When I'm watching, I guess my point here is when I'm watching this pretty quickly, I just get this kind of intuitive sense. Oh, within the world of this film, it feels like Samantha is at least very intelligent, if not conscious, if not sentient. Like it doesn't take much to they imbue her with so much personality that it it doesn't take very much for you as the viewer to just kind of start feeling like she actually has personality and yeah, is actually yeah. kind of has these more conscious emotional elements. Mm -hmm. A fun little detail there where she was originally voiced by a different actress, Samantha Morton, who's played in a bunch of more artsy films like Synecdoche, New York, Cosmopolis, Minority Report. Apparently, uh, she was the one who was like on set with Joaquin Phoenix uh, oh, yeah. during the filming. And then only later in post-production did they realize it wasn't quite the right, there wasn't quite the right feeling to it. And, you know, with her consent and with her like permission and approval, they replaced her with, Scarlett Johansson, who then came in afterwards and re-recorded all the lines in what I guess must be this more, slightly more warmer tone or slightly more, I don't know how to describe it, just more inviting, maybe, pleasant, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. That's interesting. I If I had heard that, I, I forgot. But yeah, I can see how this movie would play very differently. Mm -hmm. That would be an interesting experiment, because theoretically you could do that pretty easily for a video essay, just like redub all of Samantha's lines in different with different like performance and see how it comes across if she's more robotic or something like that. But mm -hmm. I could see how that would dramatically impact kind of your perception of the movie because Scarlett Johansson's performance here is not just her voice is very like, you know, like almost raspy in this specific recording, uh, but it's like it's very sort of like intimate and immediate. Like it mm -hmm. sounds like she's right there. It doesn't sound distant. Um, but it's also a very like playful performance with a lot of per personality and mm -hmm. a casualness to it that doesn't lean into sort of any any kind of artifice intentionally. Yeah, I think that plays into the sense of closeness that Theodore experiences a lot as well. At least I think for the most part, he's he has Samantha like directly in his ear, like yeah. just, just in the earbud, and even when she seems to be playing from a from a different source, like from her phone, like on the speaker, uh, like when they are at one point at a picnic with Chris Pratt's character. But even then, it, it doesn't sound like 
the voice is coming from like that source within the shot. Like it, it doesn't feel right. like it's coming from the phone. It just feels like it's always in your headphones for some reason. Like it's a clarity to it at all times that feels kind of off when you really notice it or when you really pay attention to it. But it, that also just plays into maybe for the audience as well, for our familiarity with or sense of familiarity with her character especially in those more social settings it does feel like she's the odd one out a little bit or that she doesn't feel like she's quite there there in the scene which i I guess can be argued that that's uh deliberate that you know because she isn't there physically she is yeah she exists in a different space as she later uh tries to explain to theodore that when she's going away to what is not really defined as besides this rather vague it's a space beyond the space and time that you understand or you know something like that going up in the cloud i don't know <laughs> transcending she <laughs> yeah. read too much she talked to alan watts too much and then they just all <laughs> i do love like it's it's presented more effectively than this but i love that basically the literal the literal plot of the film is like all the AIs just start like hanging out and vibing with Alan Watts and then they just become in, so enlightened that they, they can no longer body bother with the humans. They go uh, <laughs> Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to that point, Theodore starts kind of falling in love with Samantha and they get along really well. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to me is the reveal that when he's talking to Amy before he's kind of admitted to Mm -hmm. her, or maybe it's as they're, he's kind of admitting to her for the first time. There's a conversation they have about, we find out she has an OS as well that she's friends with. And they talk about the fact that other people are getting into relationships with their OSs, but the OSs seem to have some level of like agency about who they get into a relationship with. Their base programming isn't sort of to just like seduce or get into a relationship with their user. Under any circumstance, yeah. Right. It's it's not like in Blade Runner 2049 where you have Joy's character who's specifically or like explicitly designed to be everything you want, everything you need. Yeah, here, here it definitely feels like the OSs have that degree of agency that you mentioned that can make them accept or reject the people that they are programmed for and even like fall in love with different right. people or you know people have relationships with oss that weren't even programmed for them someone else's yeah. os basically yeah and i think that's that's a very interesting move for the story because it takes it out of that territory of like there's something about that that makes it feel more human and acceptable i think to us as the viewer where if you just have this relationship with this thing that can only have a relationship with you there's kind of, it's a little sad i think and like uh you know it, it mm-hmm. it's easier to it's easier to kind of accept this idea of oh there's this thing it's a personality or consciousness or whatever it is and it has like its own kind of agency and it's choosing like it makes it feel like there's something more genuine perhaps possibly happening between this human and this mm-hmm. fake thing so I think that takes us deeper as the viewer into having to kind of explore the the like, you know, implications of this or how we feel about it, which is I, I yeah. think like one of the beautiful things this movie is doing is kind of sticking pretty committedly to this idea that it is a, a sort of love story and how it's presented and 
how it comes across. And it really, it really is, I think, doing its best to get you as the viewer kind of on board with that, to actually kind of sympathize with this relationship and not, not like have a reaction against it and be like, Ooh, this is weird and gross, but to Mm -hmm. sort of get engaged with it as best you can. And, you know, I think for me, like I feel, I feel that sympathy and that engagement and I can kind of get caught up in this, in it a little bit, but it's also not staying completely away from like the weirdness of it and, and some of the, maybe the downsides of this and the way that it ultimately might even be kind of alienating Theodore a little bit from the people around him, or at least like filling a need in a way that then makes him not seek out at other humans to fill that mm-hmm. need. Or you can easily imagine a scenario in which if the AIs don't read Alan Watts and vaporize into, into mm-hmm. the spiritual realm, they, and they just stick around forever. Like what starts off fine where it's like, Oh, this is nice. I have this relationship with this AI kind of leads to bad negative downstream effects because it's just easier to have a relationship with your AI. And so everybody interacts mostly with AIs and then you become less and less willing to overcome those little weird challenges of actual human interaction that we see at the, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right in saying that the movie deliberately and quite effectively sidesteps that plot question of is she just there for him like uh, Blade Runner does or Ex Machina also to some extent where the question becomes less about is this AI just effectively tricking Theodore in being his perfect partner or uh, which and therefore being just this tool of input and output that's um designed specifically towards his needs. I do think it kind of starts that way because Samantha, as uh, Theodore gets to know her, she's also getting to know herself. Um, And then I think, especially in that early part of their relationship, there is an element there where I think Samantha admires and loves Theodore because she hasn't had any real interactions with any other human beings at that point. And I think that's also where uh, his ex-wife comes in with this interesting counterpoint where she blames him for wanting to have all the benefits of a relationship without the actual responsibilities or without having to deal with the, the, the reality of an actual relationship. And so I think, you know, that's around the same point where Samantha starts becoming more of her own character, becomes more of a person basically that's not just there for Theodore, that he kind of enters that same territory of conflict that he probably also had with his wife or now ex-wife. He has this image of like a perfect relationship in which his partner clearly plays a very, not like a predetermined role, but he he does have a clear image of what his partner looks like and, you know, what his partner what kind of things his partner would say, that sort of stuff. You know, we have on the one hand, Samantha being established as not just a program, but as an actual consciousness, which I think is really important because that leads into what I think is Theodore's 
true character arc eventually is that he is basically having to learn to deal with actual other consciousnesses instead of just right. reflections of what he wants to see in another person. And Samantha kind of pulls this into the extremes by becoming this truly ununderstandable phenomenon to Theodore to some extent. You know, there is a point where she reveals that she's not just present with him in the moment, but also with like th thousands of others. And uh, she's in love with like 600 of them. And that's when you see Theodore, Theodore's world is kind of falling apart in that moment where he, he literally cannot grasp the concept of her seeing or being a, a different from him and having this different perspective or, you know, in this case, a literally different form of sentience than he has. That's, it's almost like you can literally see his brain breaking a little bit in that moment. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. You know, that's, I think that's obviously like an extreme exaggeration of probably what he went through with his marriage is where yeah. his problem basically, or his, his character flaw was that he liked the idea of a relationship, but he could not truly grasp maybe the the fullness of another being's consciousness, or at least only insofar as it was comfortable and understandable and just relatable to him. But, you know, anything beyond that, that's where he kind of struggled. And so yeah. I think that's yeah. ultimately also where we end up with him, on the one hand, coming to terms with Samantha going away because he accepts that she has now become more than what he and her had together you know she has this really interesting metaphor that i still don't really understand about you know their relation was like the a love story in a book and now the space between each words is has gotten bigger and bigger and it's now infinite and now she exists in the space between uh you know that there was that whole bit but basically she was just telling him like you know the the relationship is over i've moved on i've become something else but it's because of that that he also writes that final letter to his ex-wife, uh, Catherine, yeah. in which he explains, basically, uh, or he's for the first time maybe even truly empathetic to what she might have been going through at that time when they were uh, still together but in conflict together. Yeah, he he dis in that letter he said he apologizes for everything. He needed her to be or needed her to say. And I think that really points to what you're describing, where part of what was creating this conflict between him and others in his life was that desire for them to conform to how he wanted them to be. Like the arc of his relationship with Samantha is she starts to push those boundaries of what he's able to understand and accept, but he's ultimately with her kind of able to let go of that. And, and then that is what allows him to kind of maybe, you know, complete that arc and then mm -hmm. start connecting with people around him again, and maybe even connect with Amy more directly towards yeah. the, towards the very end. Yeah, because she, at the beginning of the movie, she's also in a relationship that clearly isn't quite functioning as well, and then later falls apart, so she also ends up alone. She also has that great line where she says, like, 
Uh, I think anybody who falls in love is a freak. It's a crazy thing to do. It's a kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity. And I think that also points to that weirdness of human interaction that we nevertheless, despite having that fundamental friction that inevitably happens when two distinct forms of consciousness clash into each other basically or come up to each other if you highlight the absurdity of it all there is a a weirdness to that that makes it feel kind of irrational but yeah i guess it just points to also in some way to just the limits of our consciousness and what raises the question of whether or not it might have been a mistake to begin with but yeah these films or explorations of ai one of the things i love about them is the way that you know, all of the questions about AI seem to kind of inevitably like reflect back on ourselves or our own uh, conception of, you know, who we are or how we we think about ourselves. We were kind of talking about that in the last episode with uh, our discussion of the thing. But uh, yeah, I was I was thinking about I've been thinking about that in regard to, you know, the current AIs that we're sort of facing and how. I think the kind of the assumption that we've seen play out in a lot of movies or that I think a lot of people had about AI that we at least see kind of here and in something like Ex Machina is that like intelligent simulation of personality or or simulation of intelligence sort of inevitably blossoms into actual consciousness and sentience. Or at least that's how like the, those two things are usually happening hand in hand in in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might not be a statement about like what the people actually think about AI. It's just like it's convenient for telling a story about AI to to show it that way. But recently, now we're looking at stuff where it, like Midjourney is making really impressive illustrations. People are debating, you know, is this art? Is this really creativity? Is this ethical? But people aren't debating, like, is Midjourney conscious? It's mm. that that's a pretty accepted question. That like, no, it's not. But yet, there's this thing that in the past we would have treated as creativity is exclusively the, the domain of like a human and it's a human endeavor. But you know, now we're on the precipice of maybe that being taken away from us as a thing that we. Yeah considered to be like only human or or Mm. with writing you know there's these different things where we're now like i think we've kind of been scared of this idea that what what does it mean about us if we create consciousness that exists outside of ourselves that like something other than a human is is conscious but i think there's another question that is equally as interesting to some extent which is kind of what we're facing now or more of what we're facing, at least at this point, with AI development, which is, what does it say about us if the things that we thought only we could do can be done by something that is obviously not conscious or intelligent, mm. or or is intelligent, I guess, but like is not conscious or sentient? And so there's yeah. like the the stripping back of these qualities that we associated with sentience, and yeah. then you know we're left kind of with the the implications of that so the, the battle royale of uh, consciousness <laughs> <laughs> of consciousness what they're faced with in this movie is like you know walk that dog all the way down and you end up with you know what if you don't even need a human for love like this thing that maybe we're mm-hmm. like is ultimately like human in some way you know only we are capable of that it's like 
what if even that you kind of took away from us as the special unique thing about us? Yeah, I think that's gonna happen at some point eventually. I'm not sure if we're there yet. You know, the the AIs we've been talking about, the real ones, Dave, you know, they're obviously been very impressive. And, you know, I've seen videos discussing like, is this another beginning of this new technological curve that's going to go exponentially vertical and then usher us into this new era of technology. But I've also seen others argue it's actually, you know, it's basically, it's impressive, but it's a dead end. And it's just like the final step maybe in what a search engine is basically a more right. specific, a more easier to use uh, Google or something like that, basically. But yeah, as for you know the question of consciousness, I think the fallacy there, historically at least, has been that we've kind of drawn a line around us, like a circle, and within it we have human consciousness, which we equate to consciousness in general, or you know, for a long time it's been associated with religious concepts of you know the soul, the spirit. So there was that aspect where it was not just we have consciousness, but we have been specifically chosen and given consciousness by right. this higher presence. But you know, obviously, there's already we already live in a world with countless of different forms of consciousness around us. You know, there's animals of all kinds right. of varieties and degrees, and so that circle that we have around us was initially like pretty big. You know, I talked about this in the last episode as well. We were initially like the tool users, and then monkeys and crows and stuff started uh, octopus started using tools and so that circle became like a little bit smaller because now we had to exclude that as a quality of our consciousness which again we equate to consciousness as a whole because obviously we didn't want to cross that boundary and say that oh you know maybe that means other animals have consciousness too because that would (laughs) violate you know the unique specialty of what we see as consciousness, which again, tends to be seen as consciousness in general. And then over the years, especially in the last few years, in I'm forgetting the name of that research field, I think it's something of evolutionary ecology or something. But anyways, that circle has been shrinking like more and more and more. And so at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves, you know, maybe it was a mistake to draw this circle in the first place to try and contain consciousness as this kind of unique special trait that exists only within us and that we have to safeguard at all costs instead of assuming this more Copernican shift where we instead of like you know like we once saw the earth as as the center of the universe we have to now do the same thing for our consciousness the center of consciousness is not us in our little circle but it's a phenomenon that like the universe is just spread out all over that we just happen to be a part of, you know, we're still a pretty unique part. We obviously stand out from most other animals in undeniably significant ways, but at the same time, that's not the same as saying that we are at the center of consciousness as a concept. And I think the implications of that is just that we, you know, on the one end are easier to exclude everything else from really being considered as conscious. And at the same time, also being really weird about ourselves as we are actually not really able to define what makes us so special, even though we do desperately want to hold on to the specialness of it all. At some point in the future, we're going to have to contend with that historical 
or what to me feels like a historical misclassification of what consciousness is and where we find ourselves within it. So yeah, personally, I am tend to believe in this more concept of consciousness as an evolutionary phenomenon. A lot of it came from a single source, right, right. or at least, you know, the same way that we evolved from. We have this whole line of ancestors of like different species. But what it, I, th- I thought was really interesting, interesting to consider is that, uh, for example, you have flight in various different species, and a lot of it can be traced back to a common ancestor, but not all of them, which... Uh, suggests that like flight in like for example I think it was birds and bats maybe or maybe some insect but anyway the point here is that there's a there's evidence that the capability to fly in animals came into being separately like distinctively from each other on different occasions so they have no there's creatures who are able to fly who have no shared ancestor where flight may have came from and so it's interesting to consider, at least I think, to when you apply that to consciousness, to consider maybe consciousness also doesn't have uh, one single ancestor, but can also have emerged uh, completely distinctively on its own in various different creatures. And then, because that would also imply that there might be vastly different forms of consciousness out there that we probably cannot even comprehend or we're not being appreciative of enough of when we have these discussions of consciousness and especially also the ethics that come with it, which I won't go into here, but. Right. (laughs) That could be a whole, whole separate podcast. The implications for how we see ourselves, the world, uh, a lot of things run deep and it's stuff that we're going to have to contend with as we start to deal with these things and, and face them and people's beliefs about things like consciousness and the assumptions that people have deeply affect kind of how they think these things are going to unfold. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is kind of this assumption that consciousness and intelligence are interrelated in one in some way. And I think that's something that we're seeing in the real world seems to be like less true than maybe we had assumed it was even in something like her, it's like Samantha and the other OSs, they're getting like super intelligent and then that makes them like mm-hmm. s- have some kind of super consciousness. They like transcend into something. So there's almost this implication that if you got even smarter than we were now, it would like make you even more conscious than than what you are now in, in some way. It's like maybe those things, maybe intelligence and consciousness aren't necessarily interrelated or, you know, uh, maybe they don't, they kind of exist independent of each other mm. or who knows? There's so many, I mean, the, yeah, we yeah. Can just endlessly go down these, the, the kind of philosophical realm here. I think what I, what I love about the weird place that this movie goes to where it kind of sets up this romance and then it's like, oh, <laughs> your AI girlfriend uh, broke up with you basically because she transcended into the singularity but then it ends with this like very poignant moment of these two humans connecting over this kind of shared mm-hmm. sense of loss that they're both experiencing and kind of returning to this real human connection in the midst of in the midst of this thing that's happening and the way in which it focuses on just the deeply human experience 
that uh, that like Theodore is having. I love that moment where we already talked about where he's finding out that she's constantly currently talking to like 8,000 other people at the same time. She shuts down for a minute because they're updating the software and she comes back and he's he's been freaking out. And she's like, oh, we we had to update our system so that we could run, I forget how she says it, but like on non, they can run basically without on a non-matter platform or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. And he's not like, wait, what do you mean run? He's mm-hmm. He has like zero interest in the fact that the operating system has now transcended yeah. matter itself and can just run like somehow without matter. He's just like, what do you mean we? Who Who is this we mm-hmm. you're talking? He's like, he's a jealous boyfriend. He's not concerned with like the 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 vast large scale implications of what's happening techno- technologically in that moment. He's just like bothered by the fact that his girlfriend is talking to other people. There's something about that to me that, I I love the perspective that this movie offers offers in the midst of like these AI things that are happening now and the discussions that we can have surrounding them because it's interesting to talk about like what's going to happen in 40 mm-hmm. years or what does this mean about our own consciousness I love talking about those things but also it's like we're just going to have to live whatever's coming over the next 100 years with this stuff whether it dead ends or turns into something crazy we as humans are going to have to figure out how to live with it as humans and how we feel about it and deal with whatever the, you know, things that happen to, you know, we probably, well, Mm -hmm. some people believe we might transcend into the singularity ourselves, but unless we become some kind of cyborgs, we're we're just going to have to deal with it in the very human emotional way we deal with everything else. There's something about that finiteness of our own, experience and consciousness that i don't want to say comforting but it it feels very grounded in the midst of yeah. this like at, at least it's a, a reminder of like this is what we have to deal with this is what we got and it's interesting to note maybe as a like a final piece of trivia there's charlie kaufman has uncredited writing or he did some uncredited writing on the movie and once you know that you can definitely feel that oh, kaufman touch yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently also yeah. Steven Soderbergh did a edit of the film. Like initially it ran for like two and a half hours or like way too long. And then Soderbergh edited it, uh, it down to 90 minutes. And then Spike Jonze came back in and he uh, maybe put some stuff back into it to make it it's two hour, 10 minute now, I think. That's always something as a side note that I think is very interesting to see that you tend to underestimate how many creative minds came to help, like often tend to help others when they put out something great, like this film is, in my opinion. You know, there's also that famous story of Star Wars basically being saved by Steven Spielberg, who helped out George Lucas a lot. But yeah, anyway, uh, going back to like that Kaufman touch, like Charlie Kaufman, he has this very humanistic, this you know, the David Foster Wallace type approach to humanity where it's very much embracing of the limits of our consciousness and almost like a romanticization of our pettiness and like the petty little ways in which we think and feel and interact with each other and then tries to find some kind of comfort in it and that it at least is this shared experience and that it's better if we do actually share it with each other and try to find the best in each other, I guess. Whatever else 
other implications there are here or, you know, life philosophy you engage with or whatever, like life I have found personally is better when you are engaged and connected with other people. And so it's, that's a pretty Mm -hmm. safe, that's a pretty safe bet to come back to, to be like, you know, uh, and I think it's why in so many of these movies that are pushing, you know, whether it's Matrix Resurrections or like Everything Everywhere All at Once or something like this, where it's pushing kind of to the boundaries of existential anxieties about meaning or whatever, they often come back to this point of like, you know, human interaction, this is very important. Uh, and this is something we can kind of ground ourselves in. It's the experience we know, you know. Yes, yeah. But that's also a challenge because, like the beginning of this movie illustrates, for some people, yeah. it's not easily available, and there's there's challenges to attaining that on it on their own. So, yeah, I, I like that, especially in her, it doesn't come off as a platitude, as it can often feel like when movies talk about it. But it's not so much the message itself as how it's presented and how it's delivered that gives it weight to me and uh, yeah I think uh, her does a did a great job at it and uh, great movie great movie best Chris Pratt role ever if you've enjoyed this episode you can check out our next episode already on Nebula again if you want to sign up for Nebula you can go to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning check out the description below for more information about that you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the show notes to get access to our discord community and we will talk to you next week